Good morning, crowd family, and uh, happy, happy Sunday. Hey, listen, before we get into the message, I just want to do a shout out to Hama Tagara. Hama, love you, brother, and praying for you and miss you. Uh, I know that you always listen to our uh, YouTube channel every Sunday, so God bless you, brother. If you have your Bibles, turn to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15 is today's text. That's Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. We're now in part five of our series, Doctrine and Devotion. Now, before we dive into the text, I want to do a quick review from last week's text, verses 1 through 10, and the focus was on the practice of sound doctrine, in other words, behaving like true believers. And in verse 1, it says, Paul writes, you, now the the Greek literally reads, but you, to show the, the contrast between what they, the false teachers, did and what Titus was to do. So Paul says, you, speaking to Titus, or but you, must teach what is in accord or appropriate fitting with sound doctrine. Now remember the word fitting describes what appropriately relates to belief in the gospel. Now now say sound doctrine, say that, sound doctrine. A sound doctrine, our belief system, what we believe affects the way that we conduct ourselves and how we relate to others. Now, remember, Paul's idea of sound doctrine isn't just about hard-to-understand theological ideas. It's about life. Say that. It's about life. It's about how to live. And you see, good teaching affects our lives. It changes how we behave. Our beliefs uh, should affect our behavior. And with that in mind, Paul then addresses five different groups. Remember that? And he begins by telling Titus to teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and also in endurance. And then Paul tells Titus to teach the older women, and that's in verse 3a. He says, likewise, verse 3a, likewise. In other words, everything I just said to the older men, Titus, likewise, is to be applied to the older women, but there's additions. And he says this, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Paul then gives a list of good things that the older women are to train the younger women, and he writes this, then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, and pure, to be busy at home, in other words, keepers at home, to be kind and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign, in other words, dishonor, discredit, or blaspheme the word of God. And then in verse 6, Paul tells Titus to encourage the younger men to be self-controlled and sober-minded. And then he gives Titus some some guidelines uh, for mentoring younger men, and that's in verses 7 through 8. Follow me now. And everything set them an example By doing what is good in your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, verse 8, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. And then Titus was to teach the slaves or the bondservants about their specific duties as Christians. Now this also, remember now, this also has application for employer and employee relationship. And then verses 9 and 10 Um, it says this, teach slaves, teach slaves, Paul's telling Titus, teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything. Now, this should be qualified by everything that does not require disobedience to God. Got it? Then he says to try to please them. This refers to an attitude of cheerful service. 
And then he says not to talk back to them. In other words, not speaking against them. And in verse 10, and not to steal from them. Okay, don't embezzle money or goods, but to show that they can be fully trusted. In other words, dependable, faithful worker, a dependable, faithful worker, so that in every way they may make the teaching about God our Savior, I love this, attractive. That they may... This, that, that, so that in every way they may or will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. The King James says it like this, that they may adorn, adorn, love that, the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. This now brings us to today's text. Uh, the title of my message is Amazing Grace. Everyone say that. Say Amazing Grace. And, and we know that God's grace is nothing short of amazing, right? In today's text, Paul is simply showing Titus what living in response to God's grace looks like. So five points from the text. If you're ready, say yes. Number one is the access through grace. The access through grace. Write that down. Again, the access through grace. Look at verse 11a with me. For the grace of God. Say that. For the grace of God. Say grace. Come on, say grace. There are two kinds of grace that God gives. There's what we call common grace. Say that, say that, common grace. And this is the grace that God gives to, to all people. And so what I want you to do is I want you to breathe in, breathe out. That's common grace. It's God, listen now, it's God sustaining humanity by providing us air to breathe, food to eat, economies to create jobs, and all the things that sustain our lives. That's common grace. Now listen, these things don't come about because the human race deserves it or makes it happen. Rather, it's God. Say it's God by his own mercy and kindness toward a rebellious human race. Matthew 5:45 says this. Matthew chapter 5 verse 45 says this. He causes the, his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. That's common grace. God's benevolent action in providing daily necessities for humanity. But the grace Paul is speaking of here in the text is something that's not common to all. Rather, he speaks of a unique grace, one that all do not know or experience in the same manner. This is what we call Saving grace, say that, saving grace, and it's often defined as God's unmerited favor. Uh, also, it's, it's using the acrostic grace, uh, God's riches at Christ's expense. I've also heard it say, uh, said like this, grace is everything for nothing to those who don't deserve anything. Or like this, grace is being given not what we deserve, but what we need. Or it's God's active favor whereby his greatest gift is bestowed upon those who have deserved the greatest punishment. Great definitions of God's grace. Now let's look at verse 11b. That brings salvation. For the grace of God, verse 11b, that brings salvation. God's grace brings salvation. Okay, you don't go out and get salvation. We don't do that. Got it? It comes to us. Okay, you and I have the opportunity then for, therefore, to receive it. I want you to write this down, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9, a very familiar passage here. Uh, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says, For it is by grace you have been saved. Did you get that? For it is by grace, by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. Uh, it is the gift of God, 
Listen, listen to what it says now. Not by works. Got it? So that no one can boast. Now, now what distinguishes Christianity from all other religions is grace. It's grace. It's not what we do. It's what he has done for us. All other religions are based on what they can do uh, to, to gain favor with God. Christianity is different. It's not what we do. It's what he's done for us on the cross. Amen? Now, if you're saved, say amen. Salvation, come on, say amen. Salvation means that you have been cleansed from sin, from sin by the blood of Jesus, redeemed and purified, delivered eternally from the penalty of sin, and assured, love this, and assured of spending all of eternity with Jesus when you die, when you pass away. Now write this down, John 14, verses 1 through 3. John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. And Jesus, as he's speaking to his disciples, says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, I would have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you. He says, if, if it were not so, would I have told you that I am not going to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. Isn't that awesome? 2 Corinthians 5.8, 2 Corinthians 5.8, Paul writes, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Someone say amen to that. So let's go back to the text. For the grace of God that brings salvation, verse 11c says this, has appeared to all men. Did you get that? Has appeared to all men. Now this is referring to the embodiment, embodiment of grace in the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, let's, go, let's go to John, John chapter 1, verse 14. John chapter 1, verse 14. It says the word, who's the word? It's Jesus. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. In other words, he tabernacled among us. So the word Jesus became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, say glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father. Listen to what it says, full of grace. There's that word again, full of grace and truth. Now, 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 the word appeared, say appeared, the word appeared is the ancient Greek word epiphano or epiphania. In the English, we get the word epiphany, and it means to shine or has shined out. The, the idea is something invisible becomes visible. Did you get that? It's the idea, and I got to get this, it's the idea of grace suddenly shining forth into the moral darkness. Got it? So, so we don't go out and get salvation. God brings it to us. And it's available to all, but must be received, received in order to be activated in one's life. And I'll prove it to you because John chapter 1, verse 12. John chapter 1, verse 12 says, But as many as received him to them, as many as received him to them, listen to what he says, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. So it's available to all, but we must receive it in order to be activated in one's life. Now back to the text, because I want to make sure uh, that uh, I'm clear on, on, on what the text is, 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 is not saying, okay? So let's read the text. Uh, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Paul isn't saying or teaching 
universalism here. Universalism is the belief that all humanity, all humanity will be saved, no matter what they believe or how they live. Uh, there's no hell, and everyone is going to heaven. That's not what Paul is teaching here. Got it? Instead, the thrust, the thrust of this, this text is to show the extent, love this, the extent of the power of the gospel to reach humanity from every tongue, tribe, and nation. Got it? The phrase all men in the text there, of the text, implies the thousands of different people groups. I want you to follow me here. God's grace provided, provided salvation for all men. No race, no nationality, no class or group is excluded. Male or female, old or young, rich or poor, all are guilty before God and can be saved by His grace. Now listen, His grace wasn't offered to a select few or a special group. It has been offered freely to all who will receive it. Got it? Who will receive it? Listen, there, there has never been a soul so wicked, a heart so hard, or a mind so corrupt that Jesus couldn't save. Now write this down, 2 Peter 3.9. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you. Love this. Not wanting anyone, anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance. So number one is the access through grace. Number two, point number two is the ability, the ability of grace. Write that down, the ability of grace. Now listen, this grace of God that we come to know through the gospel as a story of Jesus' incarnation, his sinless life, his, his perfect obedience, his God-satisfying death, and his triumphant resurrection is more than a great story. You see, as we believe in Jesus Christ, trusting in his righteousness as our own, uh, believing that his death fully satisfied divine justice on our behalf, receiving his life as our life. That's pretty awesome, isn't it, right? That's awesome, but it doesn't stop there. Listen, his grace continues working in us. It's never passive or neutral. It continues, say continues. It continues to have an impact and influence in and upon our lives. Prove it, I will. Look at verse 12. Paul writes, it teaches. Say that, it teaches. And I want to stop there. This is the present tense, so it describes an action that continues. An action that continues. Now, as we believe in Jesus, his gospel, listen now, his gospel continues to instruct us, or in other words, train us. And the word carries the idea of training someone by discipline, often used of training a child. Now, sometimes training involves information. Other times it involves correction and persuasion. Often it involves modeling the type of behavior being instilled. And we see all of this in God's word. We're informed about the kind of life and behavior that characterizes a Christian. Now, now this particular word, teach or train, uh, means that we must Always, say always, always see ourselves as a student who needs to learn more and more and more about God's Word, about the Word of God. 
We must be after, love this, after, be after true teaching and instruction all the way through life. Now, as always, I give you lessons, right? Here, here's the lesson. The lesson is this. We must always put ourselves under, under the discipline of God's word. I'm going to say it again. We must always put ourselves under the discipline of God's word. Now, if you're saved, say amen. Come on, can't hear you. If you're saved, say amen. Listen, we are lifetime students. As followers of Jesus Christ, we are lifetime students. Now, we'll never learn it all, and we'll never know it all, but when we show, when we show that we are eager to be taught and interested in knowing God's word, we're making a great demonstration for the grace of God. Got it? That's what we're doing. We're making a great demonstration for the grace, the word of God. Now, now notice it teaches us um, to it teaches us what to avoid, uh, what not to do. Let's go ahead and read on the text. It says it teaches us to say no to godliness. Did you get that? No to godliness. Now we'll stop there. Ungodliness. Uh, say no to ungodliness. No to ungodliness. And, and ungodliness uh, means or is anything that does not glorify God. It's anything, is anything that does not glorify God. Now, now, grace teaches us to avoid or renounce everything that is contrary to the character of God. Now, listen, the more we are growing in grace, the less we will do the ungodly. Get this, the more we are growing in grace, the more we will run, run from sin. A story is told of a young girl who accepted Jesus as her Savior and applied for membership in a local church. Were you a sinner before you received the Lord Jesus into your life, inquired an old deacon. Yes, sir, she replied. Well, are you still a sinner? To tell you the truth, I feel I'm a greater sinner than ever. Then what real change have you experienced? I, I don't quite know how to explain it, she said except I used to be a sinner running after sin, but now I am saved and I am a sinner running from sin. Isn't that awesome? But now that I am saved, I am running, I'm a sinner running from sin. So, so, so God's grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness. And then he says, and worldly passions, Right? and worldly passions. This refers to our pleasure with the world system opposed to God. It's characterized by fixation upon the temporal and embracing that which is opposed or contrary to God and identified by its steady stubbornness towards God and his will. Got it? It's, it's, it's friendship with the world. And I want you to write this down, James 4.4. 4. James 4.4 4 says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. 1 John 2.15, 1 John 2.15 says, do not love the world. Did you get that? Do not love the world. That's speaking of the world system. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, listen to what he says. If anyone loves the world, speaking of the world system, love for the Father is not in them. 
Now there's a lesson. What's the lesson? Here's the lesson. Being dominated by God's grace is not being dominated by old fleshly worldly desires. I'm going to say it again. Being dominated by God's grace is not being dominated by old fleshly worldly desires. Now, if you're saved, say amen. So, so listen. So the grace of God actively, actively works in us, training us, teaching us in what we need to say no to, right? Right? Because grace enables us to say no to ungodliness, ungodliness and worldly passions and stand by it. Stand by it. Now, I want to say this. When we got saved, God changed our desires, right? God changed our desires. Now, we don't, we don't live perfect lives, and we, we all make mistakes. I get that. But we should daily find ourselves, listen now, daily find ourselves wanting to please Him, drawing closer to Him and further and further away from sin. That's what grace does. I want you to follow me here. Grace, grace, listen now, if you're saved, say amen. Grace will change your appetite. Write that down. Grace will change your appetite. In other words, you will hunger and thirst after righteousness. Got it? You will hunger and thirst after righteousness. That's found in Matthew 5, 6. Matthew 5, 6 in the Beatitudes. So grace will change your appetite, but listen now, grace will also change your attitude, not just your appetite, but also your attitude. You will set your affections on things above, not on, not the, not on things uh, of the earth. Got it? You'll set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth of the earth. Colossians, that's found in Colossians chapter 3, verse 2. Colossians 3, verse 2. So grace will change your appetite, your attitude, but also grace will change your actions. Your actions. Your appetite, your attitude, and your actions. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. That's 1 Corinthians 10.31. 1 Corinthians 10.31. That's what happens when, listen now, when, 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 when grace is working in your life, grace will change your appetite, your attitude, and your actions. Now listen, friends, you don't always, always live like you want to, but you won't live like you used to. But, okay, because you're saved, you'll have a desire to live like you ought to. Got it? You'll have a desire to live like you ought to. That being said, God's grace shouldn't be an excuse for sin but a motivation for holiness. I'm going to say it again. Write it down. God's grace shouldn't be an excuse for sin, but a motivation for holiness. Got it? Got it? God's grace is not a license to sin, friends. Rather, it's a motivation for holiness. So, so, so grace teaches us what to avoid, right? What not to do, but it also teaches us what to do. What to do. Got it? Now, now, now if you're saved, say amen. The, the great thing about today's message is that the God of grace who provides the gift of salvation is the same God of grace who trains and teaches us in godliness. Listen now. He not only saves us, but he also sanctifies us. Got it? 
not only saves us, but also sanctifies us. I love that. Let's look at the text. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live. Here we go. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Got it? So let's break that down. He says to live, to live, and to live self-controlled. That word self-control could also be rendered as soberly. Got it? So this speaking in this is speaking in regard to being right toward ourselves. Right toward ourselves. Self-controlled, soberly. Speaking in regard, in regard to being right toward ourselves. It has to do with disciplining the mind to think rightly. And you see, living in the grace of the gospel, constantly what it does, it retools our thoughts and our desires. And rather than being controlled by our passions and, and by our appetites, we discipline ourselves for godliness. Then he says, to live self-controlled. Then he says, upright. Uh, it also could be rendered as righteous. This is speaking in regard to being right toward others. Got it? Toward others. And this is an upright life characterized by truth and, and justice. What, it does, what it's doing, it's dealing honorably with all, seeking the good of all. It's doing unto others as we would have them do unto us. It's being mindful, listening, truthful, courteous, considerate, kind, and helpful. So and to, he says, and to live self-controlled, uh, that's speaking in regard to being right toward others. And, and he says upright, speaking in regard to being right toward others. Uh, the first one is right toward ourselves, then right towards others. And then he says godly, say godly, speaking in regard to being right toward God, being right toward God. It's realizing that all of life is to be lived unto God, that each day, listen now, we, 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 we present ourselves to God. Romans, write that down, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Romans 12, verse 1 says this, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a what? Living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So it's a life, listen now, centered on God and conforming to his will. Now, there's a lesson. Here's a lesson. Your godly life, your godly life verifies the grace of God. Write that down. Your godly life verifies the grace of God. Listen, God's grace not only redeemed us, but it also reforms us. Got it? It also reforms us. Grace changes us. And if we truly have tasted and experienced the grace of God, then our lives will be radically changed in two ways. Okay, first of all, we will put away, we will put, or we will pull, excuse me, we will pull away from sin. We will pull away from sin. Doesn't the text say that? The text says we will say no to ungodliness and worldly passions or lust. So we will pull away from sin. And the second way is this, that we will do the right things. We will do the right things. The text says we will live soberly, right? Or self-controlled, righteous, and godly lives. Got it? Let's, let's look at the text now again. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. 
Got it? In this present age, this would be in contrast with the age to come. Listen, God's grace is teaching us how to live today, right now, this present age. And as we live life on this earth, friends, we are to demonstrate these traits found in the text, right? These traits, okay, in our lives because they demonstrate the grace of God. Now, I want to say this. We live in this present age, but we're not of this present age. Got it? In the world, but not of the world. And you see, we live properly in this present age because we have our hope, say hope, fixed on the age to come. This brings us now to the third point. Well, point number one is the access is the access through grace. Point number two is the ability of grace. And point number three is the anticipation. Love this. The anticipation in grace. The anticipation in grace. Write that down. You see, the grace in the gospel, what it does, it refocuses our sight. Follow me here. We shouldn't just live for him, but we should also look for him. Got it? Don't just live for him, but also look for him. Let's look at verse 13 of the text. While we wait, Paul writes, while we wait. This conveys the idea of persistent expectation. Persistent expectation. While we wait for the blessed hope. Say blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. A new anticipation builds in the believer's life. Now, this looks to the rapture of the church when we will be caught up in the air to behold Jesus Christ. That's found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 through 17. Again, again 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 through 17. Now, I want to say this. There's a difference between the appearing of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. The appearing of Jesus refers to the moment he will appear in the clouds and rapture the church. Uh, and, you know, and, and the second coming, the second coming of Jesus refers to the moment he puts his feet on the ground a second time. This is in his 1,000 millennial, his millennial reign. Got it? Follow me. In the rapture, our blessed hope, he comes for us. In the second coming, we come back with him. Got it? Now listen, if the grace of God, if the grace of God is truly working in our hearts, there'll be an awareness of and a longing for the return of Jesus. There'll be some evidence of life preparation for the return of Jesus. Friends, you got to get this. Our blessed hope, our blessed hope is in the return of Jesus himself, okay? It's, it's not heaven. It's not heaven, even though heaven will be great. Our blessed hope, listen now, is seeing Jesus face to face, where we'll where we will have a greater knowledge, connection, and communion with him than ever before. Someone say amen. Now say blessed hope. Say that. Say blessed hope. Listen, the return of Jesus is more than a blessed hope. And I want you to follow me here, okay? Follow me here. It's a joyful hope. Write that down. It's a joyful hope that's found in Romans 5, 2. Romans chapter 5, verse 2. It's a joyful hope. Romans 5, 2. It's also a unifying hope, a unifying hope that's found in Ephesians 4.4. A unifying hope, Ephesians 4.4. It's also a living hope 
a living hope. First Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Don't you love this? First Peter 1, 3, a living hope. It's a stabilizing hope. A stabilizing hope. Hebrews 6, 19. A stabilizing hope. Hebrews 6, 19. And it's a purifying hope. A purifying hope. 1 John 3, 3. 1 John 3, 3. It's a joyful hope, a unifying hope, a living hope, stabilizing hope. It's a purifying hope. It's a blessed hope. Now there's a lesson. Here's a lesson. Live as if Jesus were to return today. Live as if Jesus were to, were to return today. Listen, friends, our focus, say focus, our focus needs to be on Jesus, on Jesus and the Word of God and living out His Word in our lives as if He were to return today. A tourist uh, who visited an exquisite garden on a lovely estate in Italy spoke to the caretaker. How long have you been here? He asked. 25 years. And how often has the owner been to see the estate? Four times. When did he come last? 12 years ago. Who comes then to look after things? I am left pretty much alone. Yet you keep the garden so spick and span that one would think you were expecting the owner tomorrow. Today, sir, today, replied the caretaker. Caretaker, today. Isn't that awesome? Someone prayed this, and I love this. Lord, as we daily look for our blessed hope of your glorious appearing, may we not look forward as to our getting out of some situation or our troubles, but simply look for you. I love that. Let's go back to the text. The appearing of the glory. Let's read that again. The appearing of the glory. So what starts with grace, listen now, what starts with grace will lead to glory. Got it? What starts with grace will lead to glory. The appearing of the glory, now you got to get this, of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm going to read it again. Of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This affirms Jesus' deity and that he could not reveal the greatness of God's glory if he were not God, right? Now, 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 now listen, I, I challenge any Muslim, Mormon, Jehovah's Witness, or Christian science to analyze the Greek text here because you cannot get around the fact that this text clearly says that Jesus Christ is God. Someone say amen. So number one is the access through grace. Number two, the ability of grace. Number three, the anticipation in grace. Okay, we're looking for our blessed hope. And number four is the author, the author of grace. Write that down, the author of grace. If you're still with me, say amen. The author of grace, point number four. Let's look at verse 14 now. Who gave himself for us to redeem us who gave himself for us to redeem us. This means to set free by the payment of a ransom. Not, not some partial redemption, but, but total redemption. Listen, friends, he, Jesus, paid the price. He was the perfect sacrifice. He, he gave himself, and he did it voluntarily, that he might redeem us. Now, 
Say redemption. Come on, say redemption. Three Greek words for redemption is agorazo, agorazo. It means to purchase and leave in the marketplace, agorazo. It means to purchase and leave in the marketplace. Then you have the word ex-agorazo. Ex-agorazo means to purchase and take home with you from the marketplace. Ex-agorazo, purchase and take home with you from the marketplace. And then you have lutruo. The word lutruo, the third word that describes redemption, lutruo, it means purchase and set free. The word used here in the text is lutruo. Jesus Christ went, listen, went to that cross and shed his blood so that we would be set free from all of our sins. Listen, friends, we are bought out of our slavery of sin and we are purchased for his service. Amen. We are now slaves of righteousness, slaves to God, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look at the text. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness. In other words, from everything that is contrary to the character of God. Let's read on. And to purify for himself. Did you get that? To purify for himself. Jesus Christ is our purification. We're not. Okay? We aren't. We're not. Got it, friends? He is. He's the one who cleanses us. He's the one who makes us pure. The aorist tense means the moment you trusted Jesus, you were clean. Someone say amen to that. Okay? We're not only set free from the bondage to sin, but also from the defilement of sin. So, so back in verse 13, it says that Jesus is our Savior, right? And here in verse 14, it says Jesus is our redemption, our purification, and that Jesus made us his people. Look at the text. A people that are his very own. The King James renders it like this, and purify unto himself a peculiar, say that, peculiar People. The word peculiar means distinctively excellent, valuable, and honorable. A, a peculiar treasure that is something that belongs in a special sense to oneself. Now, if you're saved, say amen. Listen now. Listen now. We are Jesus' portion, the lot of his, of his inheritance, the jewels of his crown, his fullness, his peculiar people. Amen. Now listen, Jesus made us his people for his own possession. We didn't make ourselves his people. He made us his people, and he desires that we be zealous. Listen, he desires that we be zealous for good works, for good works. Look at the text. Eager to do what is good. Got it? eager to do what is good. Believers are to be actively and aggressively pursuing the works God would have them to do. Now listen, grace is not a license for laziness. And you see, knowing that Jesus has redeemed us should make us zealous, zealous to do good works while we wait for his return. So we're working, we're working while we wait for his return. We're not just sitting doing nothing. Got it? We're not just sitting and spoiling. No, no. We're, 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 we're busy about doing good works. 
as we wait for his return. We're not, not again, we're not saved by our good works, but saved for good works. We know that, right? Martin Luther said this, God doesn't need your good works. Your neighbor does. Isn't that cool? Your neighbor does. Back to the text. He says, eager, that's the word I want to focus on, say eager, eager to do what is good. The word eager there in the text means to boil or to be hot or to glow. To boil, to be hot, or to glow. Now listen, as citizens of God's kingdom, we are to glow with good deeds here on earth. Got it? We are to glow with good deeds here on earth. That being said, question. Are you on fire for Jesus? Are you? Are you on fire for Jesus? Do you burn white hot with passion to do that which is good? Huh? Do you? And if not, then maybe God's grace has not yet appeared in your life. Or maybe you're letting other things take center stage. One, the access to grace. Number two, the ability of grace. Number three, the anticipation in grace. Number four, the author of grace. And number five, the appeal, the appeal to grace. Write that down, the appeal to grace. If you're loving this, say amen. The appeal to grace. Look at verse 15a. These then are the things you should teach. Got it? These then are the things, Paul writes to Titus, these these then are the things you should teach. Then he says, encourage and rebuke with all authority. Now, these things you should teach refers to doctrinal truths. In other words, sound doctrine that Paul had just set forth in this, earlier in this chapter, right? And here what Paul is telling Titus, he's telling Titus to preach the word of God publicly with all authority. In other words, Titus, speak the truth. Speak the truth. Exhort people to live by them, to tell them to get with God's program and to, listen now, rebuke. Don't just exhort, but rebuke people who don't live by them to expose the sin of those that are wrong in order to bring correction in their lives. Because sound doctrine, listen now, sound doctrine clarifies the gospel and encourages godly behavior. Now listen. This is Paul's admonition to Titus and to me as your pastor and to every preacher of the gospel to preach the word with all authority and with no apology. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. 2 Timothy 4, 2. Paul writes, preach the word. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Now I want to say this, the authority, the authority doesn't reside in the preacher as much as the message that the preacher preaches. The authority is found in the word of God. Verse 15b. Do not let anyone despise you, he says. Got that? Do not let anyone despise you. You see, if Titus spoke with all authority, he had to back it up with his life. 
Got it? He had to back it up with his life. He had to live so that no one would despise him for his actions, for his attitudes, or for the message that he preaches. So Paul says, Titus, you got to preach the truth. And don't let anyone despise you. Live in a way, live in a way, live in a way that no one would despise you for your actions, your attitudes, and for the very word that you preach. Now, as I, as I wrap this up, as I come to a close, I want you to please listen to me. We can moan and we can groan and weep about the fact that our country looks more and more like Crete every day. But let's remember that Jesus, listen now, Jesus is coming. And as, as citizens of God's kingdom, let's be fired up and let's get fired up to make a difference in our community, in our world, by displaying his amazing grace in our lives until he comes. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so ever grateful for your amazing grace. Where would we be if it were not for your grace? Your grace that redeemed us, that daily reforms us, and ultimately rewards us. We praise you and love you, our blessed hope, our glorious God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Someone say amen. Now, before I close, I want to give you an opportunity, if you have not done so, to receive Jesus Christ into your heart to be your personal Lord and Savior. And you see, regardless of who you are or what your sin is, what God does, God offers you His grace in the person of Jesus Christ. So, so receive Him. Call upon Him today to save you, and, and He will save you. You see, Acts 2.21, Acts chapter 2, verse 21 says, And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will, not might, you will be saved. So if you, if you want to ask Jesus to come into your life and receive Him today, to follow Him, I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes and repeat this prayer after me. Dear Jesus, I admit that I'm a sinner and I need you to come into my life to save me, to cleanse me, and to change me. I confess with my mouth that you are Lord and I believe within my heart that God raised you from the dead. I receive you this day. I am saved, sealed, sanctified, satisfied, justified, purchased by the blood of Jesus. I am born again. Thank you, Jesus, for receiving me. And I will serve you from this day forth until you call me home. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer, we would love, love to hear from you. In fact, you can email us at contact at cryout.org, and that's contact at cryout.org. So listen, blessings to all of you. Love you. Have a wonderful Sunday, and we'll see you next week.